Welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris. I am your host, joined as ever with my co-host, Andrew. Hola. How are you doing today? Good. Excellent. So today we are covering the 1980 movie Altered States, directed by Ken Russell, with a screenplay by Sidney Aaron, which is actually Patty Chayefsky, which was based on his book, before we go head on into this absolutely brilliant sci-fi body horror drama love story, just a quick couple notes. First of all, we are teaming with Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. What it does is it picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Browse articles from topic topics that you choose and start playing. You could follow any topic as specific as you like, from sports, science, to Bitcoin, and it will find the latest articles and then read them to you in a natural human voice. And why we're teaming with them is they have podcasts. Explore trending podcasts from all over the world, from over 50 countries, and our podcast will be available there too, The Cult Film Companion. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the description. And if you'd like Newsly, feel free to use the promo code CULTF1LM. Cult Film, drop the I, put in a one, and you get a month free premium subscription. So check out Newsly today. And also tune in to later in the episode where we drop a promo from our friends at the Jury Room podcast about their addiction podcast series. So if this is something that interests you, be sure to tune in to their show and the promo will air later in this episode. But right now we're getting back to Altered States. Now, Altered States, like I said, was directed by Ken Russell, who at the time, Andrew, was probably best known for the Tommy Movie? In America, he was known for Tommy probably more than anything else. Tommy w- was high-profile and Oscar material, uh, Oscar-worthy material. So probably Tommy was for Americans, yes. So I have, but a, in England, he's been known for quite a while for his other movies. So I have a confession that I have here yeah. to make. Yeah, I have been a fan of the Who since. Uh, before I was a big fan of music. The Who was one of my dad's favorite bands. I have never seen Tommy, nor have I seen Quadrophenia, and I know I'm missing out. We will do Tommy. We will probably even do Quadrophenia at some point, but we will do Tommy because Tommy is definitely a cult movie. Right. And it's a it's a trip and a half and a half and a half. Like, I'm surprised you haven't seen it. It's an acid trip. It is an acid trip. It really is. Yeah. It's it's very interesting to me. My father was always much more interested in the music, because he's a musician himself, was always much more interested in them, just the music and not so much about other projects um, kind of 
connected with bands that he liked. Okay. Which was, it was just so, like, I grew up listening to a lot of The Who, mm-hmm. and I've actually seen The Who live performing Quadrophenia, but okay. I've never watched the movies. And, um, yeah, no, I'm I, I kind of kicking myself now, because upon revisit, Altered States is one of the most visually appetizing movies that I've I've seen. It is, and that's one of his that's one of his strengths, Ken Russell's, is that that he creates incredible visuals. He I think he started off in theater actually. He was an avant-garde theater director. I could be totally wrong about that. Okay. Um but he definitely became an avant-garde movie director and what was uh labeled enfant terrible, you know, like someone who just goes against the grain all the time. Okay. He uh, he always uses uh, religious imagery in his in his movies, um, and it's something that he works out with himself with his work. So, um, kind of exercising those personal demons. And, well, perhaps, and also making a, a broad commentary on it. I mean, uh, let's see. Let's um, let's go into his. Since we're talking about him, let's go into his um, into his filmography. Okay. Um, something interesting that I, I saw in one of the um, well, something that we'll definitely get into is that he was the twenty sixth or twenty seventh choice for director for this movie. Yeah, no one wanted to do it <laughs> because Patty. I don't know what it, the the script. If there's anything I have an issue with with this with altered states, it's the script, it's the dialogue, and we will get into this. Okay, because I know that I I personally, so I don't like to comment too much on source material unless I'm uh, familiar with it myself, and I have not read. Well, the thing altered is, states. the thing is, it was written as a screenplay first. The novel is actually based on the screenplay. Right. He had the screenplay. He offered it to Hollywood you know, studios, and they said, um, I think they suggested that he turn it into a novel first and then gain some notoriety with the novel and then make the movie afterwards once the book has been established. And the book did become a bestseller. Right. So then he had a bestseller and a script uh, in his hands, you know, ready to go. I could see that this movie tackles so many different themes and so many different levels and there's there's discussions of um spirituality and psychology and um the use of uh alt- you know mind altering substances i i could see that this would be a very heady book to read and um what i did do is i i listened to someone review the book and they were just saying that it's it's so there's so much going on in it that I could see it being very difficult to adapt into an hour and a half movie. And so this is one of the um, the things that we commonly see here in the Cold Film Companion are what they dubbed as unfilmable books. Um, and we're going to get into that with, uh, with Naked Lunch, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. These were all books that were dubbed unfilmable just because certain books and literature just lend themselves more to adaptation because there's uh, a plot A, B leading to C and the, the conclusion and there's a three act structure and I I think that this this movie itself though it, visually 
is just so interesting to me that I can kind of I kind of give the dialogue a pass, although I could see where that's the big criticism. You can tell that Ken Russell is working overtime to, <laughs> I don't want to say distract from the dialogue, but to um, give, give, a, give the viewer something else to enjoy, you know, to actually sink their teeth into if the dialogue is too heady, if it's too wordy, if it's too intellectual, um, which I think it's all of. So, oh, yeah. Some of the technical jargon, some of the, the discussions. And and can we, here, you know what? Hold on. I've got this. What did, what, did, what did Ken Russell do? He had them. He had big issues with the dialogue aspects of this movie. I know that. And um, he had them like he had he has the actors. He has the actors spouting out this Patty Chayefsky dialogue, this um uh, you know, while they're eating with their mouths full, oftentimes he'll have them saying stuff at the same time, just to just to get it over with in a way. You know, to cut 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 it down a little bit. Um, he has them very excited. You know, for the actors to do this, it was difficult, I'm sure, as well. These actors are really good actors. They came from a pedigree of talent that was very ripe at that time. We have uh, William Hurt and Blair Brown. Amongst this pedigree, I think William Hurt went to, to Juilliard with Christopher Reeve, with Patti LuPone, with um, uh, Val Kilmer. I think they were all in the same class together. Kevin Kline, all of them. Uh, Meryl Streep did not, was not in Juilliard, but she's still, still of that same group, you know? So these are really, really good actors. We haven't really seen actors like this since, you know? It was a special place and time. So for William Hurt to make his screen debut with this movie, and to have Blair Brown in it as well. These are two very competent actors as well, as well as the other two that we'll get into as well. Uh, but the way they are directed, and the when Ken Russell took it on, apparently the studios were reluctant because he wasn't known for working with actors very well, but he works with these actors very well, and he gets them all beefed up, you know, emotionally. Um, for the scenes, and it's very appropriate all the way to the end of the movie. Like, he really hits the marks emotionally with these actors. Uh, the actors hit the marks very well, you know, given that they have to be so intelligent all the time and not emotional, really. You know, there's yeah. not very much emotional... Uh, there is... The, the emotions are usually saved for one lines, like, I love you, which... William Hurt finally says at the end, you know, there are moments where Patty Chayefsky has written something that is actually human, human emotion being spoken. But for the most part, there are these whiz kids who are just like rattling off, you know, one scientific uh, thing after another. Right. So that leads me to um, let's just uh, quickly bang out some of the, the, the technical stuff. And then I actually want to talk about my first experience with this movie as compared to. Um, this most recent rewatch. Um, so the cinematography, which is beautiful, um, is done by Jordan C. Cronenweth. It was edited by Stuart Baird. The music is done by John Cogliano, who was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Score and Best Sound Mixing. And I think that because this movie is so visually stimulating that sometimes the, the music... 
I it didn't give it. I didn't really give it a chance to sink in, and it's actually quite beautiful. It is, especially the romantic scenes, the love scenes. The music is is almost um, too romantic, but it really serves the scene. And once again, we're getting you know we're getting other stimuli from this movie to help us really uh, visceral viscerally connect to it. And it's done so well, so. Just go go back and give this movie a rewatch and kind of focus, just listen to the music. Um, it, and it's difficult with a movie like this because I said visually it's so stimulating that your your eyes are almost overwhelmed at times with some of the, the visuals that we're seeing on the screen that your ears like are, are kind of like, they're like a second behind. They're like, they're playing catch up to yeah. your eyes. Yeah. There was some uh, there was some high tech state of the art um, mixing that was going on with this movie in terms of the sounds as well. Uh, I I do know that. Much. Yeah, it wasn't. It's not a um, Dolby surround. It was. It was. A, it was. I guess it was kind of a pre precursor to Dolby and the kind of like really crisp kind of sound that we had. It was. It was a unique format at the time. Uh, this movie is also unique for being uh, one of the first movies to use very primitive CGI. Um, That's right. Especially at the, the at the end sequence, which we'll get into. Now, now, music, I just want to say, music has been a part of Ken Russell's work very much uh, throughout his career. He pretty much made a name for himself on British TV back in the 60s doing uh, classical music composers, their life stories. Oh. Yeah, so this goes on and on. He's directed music videos. He's done like, uh, so he's, you know, and then Aria, which is a terrific movie that we should do for our podcast sometime, is uh, different movies, movie directors making little movies out of Arias. And so I think it's about four or five different movie oh, directors. Wow. And Ken Russell is one of them. He does one of them as well. So, so I could so I, music is very and after had after altered states since it was so successful his next project that he was assigned to was the uh, film version of Evita Vander Lloyd Webber's Evita and Tim Rice's Evita um, and he it, it fell apart uh, when he wanted Liza Minnelli and they wanted Elaine Page but they thought of him after the success of altered states because he was so good with music so good with music in his movies as Tommy is an example of. So I'm I'm gonna have to, to do a look. I would I I think that his visual style, like you said, um, given his, his pedigree and his his history, I, I'm I'm very curious to see some music videos um, because I, I of his? Yeah, I'm guessing that at this see this I think the eighties Regardless of whether or not you like maybe the music, the the mix of of music with a short film kind of style that a lot of '80s classic music videos had is something that has been left on the wayside now. Yeah, he did he did a couple of videos for Elton John. I'm seeing here he did a video he did the video for Nikita. Really? Okay. Elton John's Nikita, and then another one called Cry to Heaven. Uh, so this was like 1986 when he did this. Uh, yeah. So um, that's something to definitely check out. What I, I one of the things that I personally love about doing this show is that it gives gives me a chance to kind of revisit some movies that um, I sought out earlier in my years for very different reasons. 
I, I myself was experimenting with various substances to achieve an altered state. And this is one of the movies that was recommended to me at the time. Uh, and uh, I was like, okay, trippy visuals. I was always a fan of horror. Um, so this was a movie that I, I remember seeking out and I owned on VHS. That was a, you know... Um, you owned this on VHS? I did. I remember distinctly because I got a gift. I remember it was either a birthday or Christmas. I got a gift card from one of my aunts. And I remember going to, I want to say, Circuit City, if that was still a thing, um, and buying the VHS for this. And at the time, VHSs were expensive to buy. I don't know if you remember. How much? It was probably about 20 bucks. <laughs> And VHS tapes? Yeah. Really? I thought they were more. I thought they would go up to, like, 60 bucks. You know, or... it had been out for a while. Okay. I, was, I distinctly remember the cover because we got the classic uh, William Hurt upside down in the yeah. deprivation tank. All hooked up. And it was a Warner Archives kind of movie. So it had been out for a while. But, uh, yeah, no, knowing from the, my work at the video store, I remember the prices for, like, when we get a first run, like, when those VHSs first came out. Jesus Christ. <laughs> How much? Sometimes I re- seventy dollars. Yeah, yeah, sure. And 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 now the way I I think I got the the Blu-ray of Altered States for five dollars, <laughs> which um is 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 just it's and just it looks fa- it looks terrific. Doesn't the Blu-ray it? looks fantastic, and the movie does look fantastic. Arthur Penn was the was the original director for this, and okay. he quit um, after six months of being involved. Um, because of his differences with Patty Chayefsky. And uh, and that's when they went through a string of directors before fi- finally uh, making a deal with Ken Russell. But um, what did I, I brought that up for a certain reason. Um, I can't remember. Okay. Based on what you said. Um, so this movie was made on a budget of $14.9 million, and it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, considering... Mm-hmm. Oh, but that, that, yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that when... When Arthur Penn left the project, the special effects person pretty much left the project as well. So they had to find someone else. But whoever they found um, did a really good job. We have an amazing mix of stunning visuals, very interesting, trippy editing, practical effects, which I love. I love practical effects. Yeah, Um, And you know, primitive CGI. And what I have to commend this movie for is that I think that Ken Russell realized the limitations of the CGI, and it's very limited. Um, Just because I think he knew at the time that, you know, to get... I could just imagine this man having an absolutely amazing visual imagination Mm -hmm, and to achieve what he wanted to achieve and to give the experience that he wanted the audience to have. He knew that, okay, I can't, you know, mixing in some computer stuff here and there, specifically at the end with uh, the quick cuts of uh, William Hurt's head kind of mutating, Mm -hmm. bubbling. He knew, he knew that, okay, you know, I can get away with this for so long in a cut and not letting it play out to the point where it's people are going to be pointing out, like, this looks really cheap and kind okay. of stuff. I, I, I think that's it's beautifully edited to the way that they mix the practical with this, you know, the limited 
the limited CGI um, and okay. to recognize that, you know, this technology was, you know, in its infancy at the time. It all is seamless in the movie. It's done really well. I mean, when his arm first starts mutating and he starts shape-shifting, I mean, it's, 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 you, you're, you're, you're buying it, you know? It's yeah. like, whoa! He's and he's, really, that's and really he's selling it, like, as someone that's, like, a man of science. He's like, mm-hmm. so maybe we should just start getting into, um, the, the, the thick of it here. The, um, this character, it's... So Eddie Jessup's father has died, um... When he was very young, and he was very, he was Catholic, right? He was. I mean, let's get into this aspect. Of okay. It. Let's let's dive into it, and we can branch out from sure. here. But I think it's kind of um, the root of his character, and therefore the root of the movie. Absolutely. Be- yeah, because this movie is all about him. He he um, claims that he had uh, religious visions um, for a period of time as a child. As a child, and these visions ceased. When his father passed away. And he said that he, at, at, from the moment that his father passed away, that he pretty much cut himself off from God, from religion. And it's something that he's been, he's been, while I think, he, you know, he was not justified, but understandably cut cut the religious aspect out. I could see how this, this, inciting incident, which is a technical term that they use in, in screenwriting in movies, this inciting incident of his father l- leads him to this 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 journey throughout his entire life for, for just wanting to get back to that kind of cerebral visions that he had. I think, I think he enjoyed, I think he enjoyed having these visions. While some people might have been haunted or tormented by them. Well, I, he might even be he might even enjoy being haunted and tormented. He, yeah, he's, um... He might be, he might be very rooted in those visions and the disturbing nature of them. So he does have, those are masochistic desires, right? The what, deriving pleasure from pain? Yeah, but I mean, sure, sure, you could say that, but I mean, he's, he wants, he wants truth, and he wants to, and he thinks he can find it in the most primal state of the human condition. And so he's trying to find that within himself, the most primal state of his human condition, which is going, going to be basically everybody's human condition. That's what he wants. He wants to find the universal truth of that. Right. The, the, very, the, the very basic, the, like what it was to have the first thought. Right. And when he finally achieves it, it's terror. It's basically terror. So we got a very kind of like existential yeah. kind of dread of um, of something. He. It's almost very. It's so. It's very hard to put into words because it's kind of abstract. Exactly what he's looking for. It's almost like he doesn't know what he's looking for. Well, he t- it, he talks enough about it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can really. Decipher but I think what he, it is. Yeah, he kind of talks in circles about it. Yeah, um, he does. Let's see here. Hold on. There is. I let, let's quote it. Um, I'm a man in search of his true self. How archetypal? How archetypical? How, what? How, archetypical. Ar- <laughs> no, but it's oh. archetypically. 
Okay. How archetypically... <laughs> We're going to have to re... re you're going to have to edit this. Okay. I'm a man in search of his true self. How archetypically American can you get? Everybody's looking for their true selves. We're all trying to fulfill ourselves, understand ourselves, get in touch with ourselves, face the reality of ourselves, explore ourselves, expand ourselves. Ever since we dispensed with God, it's interesting how he says we, ever since we dispensed mm. with God, we've got nothing but ourselves to explain this meaningless horror of life. Well, I think that that true self, that original self, that first self is a real mensurate quantifiable thing, tangible and incarnate, and I'm going to find the fucker. That's the line. That's one of the, the main lines that he gives. So that's this. a mix of uh, abnormal psychology textbooks and uh, like Buddhist almost maybe. There's, there's I mean, <clears throat> what is nail, nailism? What is that? Do you know? It's kind of like nothing matters. Yeah. There is no meaning. Okay, well that's to not anything. what Okay, so that's not what he's doing here. No. But he's doing something he's doing something that is in the absence of God. Um, and it's trying to go to that void. And that void that exists within us um that oftentimes we don't know how to fill, and it scares us. Um, and that's what he wants to immerse himself in, I think. I mean, you know, you can just kind of conjecture about this because it's you, there's you, only only Patty Chayefsky really knows, even if he fully knows, he might not even fully know what he's talking about or what he's trying to get at. No, I think it's interesting because one of the things that I picked up on this. Um, this last rewatch. Like I said, when I first saw this movie, I was just more interested in a body horror trippy movie to watch while under the influence. What's a body horror? Just um, something like David Cronenberg's The Fly. It's kind of like... Okay, the, it's all about the body and, and the... Yeah, yeah, The yeah. body falling apart or the body yep. mutating. Yep, um, yep. And uh, so we get that here with this movie, but... I think I remember at times when I was watching this movie under my own altered states of consciousness, kind of fast-forwarding through certain scenes. Oh, wow, okay. Because uh, I just wanted to get to the, the body horror. I just wanted well, to get to the is, trippy visuals. This... And, and I could see why you were turned off by the dialogue because it is, it's very philosophical. It could be very technical at times. And it could be... A, overwhelming at times because there's a lot of stuff that's thrown at you well and it's also a lot of it's very stilted and, and stagey you know you feel like you're uh, at a seminar or you know even a play or something like that it's just kind of like you I kept saying to myself this isn't how people talk even the intelligentsia of our world you know it's like perhaps they get sure they get heated about certain things and they'll have debates and they'll get worked up about it and it's exciting but I mean, it's almost like these people talk like this all the time. Yeah, and it's time. not a very naturalistic way. Although I could see, I could see uh, like true scientists in a laboratory setting kind of talking this way about certain yeah. constraints. But as a as a as a movie as a, that's supposed to be uh, entertaining at its at its base, 
uh, I could see it being a li- going over the head of a lot of audience members. And I did listen. And I'm sure that's what Ken Russell was thinking at the time. Yeah, go ahead. That he had, yeah. And I think, but, um, and we'll get to why this movie, you know, probably with any other director would have not achieved the level of status that it has. Uh, I did listen to a review of the book and basically what you were saying is very, very true because he said the book, like paragraphs will go on for pages of like inner monologues of what's going on inside these characters. And there's the omniscient um, kind of overseer narrative also happening in the book. And a lot of this information is very, it had to be condensed for the movie and a lot of internal monologues that characters were having was kind of transformed into dialogue. Well, it, 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 it started to get to that point where one of your pet peeves where expository becomes, you know, part of conversation. I am such and such and such and such, you know, like, like you don't need to say it. Like people don't say that about themselves, not necessarily unless they're drunk and full of shit, you know, full of, <laughs> right. full of themselves, you know, right. but I noticed that in this movie where it's like, okay, you know, it's almost like, um, uh, I don't know if Brechtian is the right word, where they would actually put a poster up on stage <laughs> explaining, you know, what was going on. Uh, with this scene, you know, or the, that's more kind of like the political ramifications of it. But I mean, you know, it's just so presentational. It's very presentational, and at times it can be very awkward. Yeah. Like, he, he finds a friend to bring him to this Mexican tribe, and they have a conversation about whether or not they the tribe will allow him to participate in their r- ritual, not prior to getting onto a plane and flying to Mexico. They've climbed up half the mountain already they're stopping for a breath they're halfway up this mountain and he's like so do you think the blah 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 try will let me try their blah 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 ritual with this blah 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 drug like do you think that's just the kind of conversation you would have prior to like going out on this huge like yeah embarking upon yeah. the actual journey but i could see you know and again i i, I don't have the the knowledge of the the base material so i don't know how it was established in the book but um maybe and, maybe you know, maybe and once again that's not even the base material no we, it's not yeah, as um just... so but i want to hold on i want to read here another another sure. little blurb because this goes back to what you were saying about fast forwarding certain scenes when altered states was released in december 1980 it received fair to positive reviews Time voted at one of the 10 best movies of the year. It was a box office hit, especially with the youth audience, as Russell claimed. And this is in Ken Russell's autobiography, which is a great read, by the way. By the way, it's called A British Picture. Um, he says, many of the kids went back time and again for the halluc- hallucinations alone. Sitting in the foyer between trips, getting high, while a lookout was bribed to stay in the auditorium, enduring the dialogue until it was time to poke his head around the corner, around the door, and shout, "Next hallucination!" So this is not just me, not okay. just you. <laughs> and this, this just as a brief side note: uh, this similar kind of uh, drug culture esque audience was was a big reason why two thousand and one was so popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said that a lot Acid, of it was LSD. a lot of, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. that people were going to see it just for the amazing trippy visuals. Mm-hmm. And um, but this movie and I could see, like I said, with somebody else other than Ken Russell helming it, 
I don't think it probably would have been probably as fulfilling of a, of an experience as it is. Okay, wow. I mean, I'd love to see a list of directors. I can't imagine what what it would have been like with Arthur Penn. I don't know his work as well as Ken Russell's, but it certainly wouldn't have been the same movie. So, um, should we get into... I, I know you wanted to get into this. The the I- issues that Ken Russell and Patty Chayefsky had behind the scenes. It uh, amuses me to no end because they hated each other. They did. So, Patty Chayefsky... <laughs> I guess was pretty much used at this point to having kind of like carte blanche of like what he wrote was what he had, was going. He had three Academy Awards for screenwriting so far um, at the time, and I know the network big one was network one was huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, the hospital and Marty are the other two. Okay, yeah. But I I haven't seen the hospital or Marty, but I've seen net. I saw Network in a, a, a film class, mm-hmm. and it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It still holds up. It's still relevant today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, to coin such an iconic phrase. So at this point in his career, he was pretty much like, "What I write is what is going to be filmed." Yeah, and I get that. Um, but it, it, you know, the final product was disowned by him. Although and then he had a heart attack and died not oh, too geez. long after this whole thing. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I mean, I sh- I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, wow! I mean, how how stressful was this for him? You know? Yeah. Um, and I could see him. You know, and, and you see this a lot with with some authors are fine with. They basically say, okay, you know what, I've, I've signed off the rights to my book, you do with it what you will, and we'll see what happens. Well, often, even screenwriters will just kind of, you know, say, okay, it's yours now, do what you want with it. I mean, it's hard to part with your 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 words, you, you know, they're your baby, you know, you, you put your heart and soul and blood and sweat and tears into this. Um, so it's difficult to do it. But Patty Chayefsky, I mean, it's th- the question of ego comes into play, you know, and how much ego was involved with him in this in this work. Um, and Ken Russell probably, you know, he was he had his hands tied with the script. He couldn't change one word of it. So he was just doing what he could to, like, keep the audience interested, you know, Obviously, all these other directors, you know, didn't want to take this on for themselves, and Ken Russell did take it on. So they did. They fought. They fought and fought and fought. And there's, there's one point. Let's see. There's one point when Ken Ken said to Patty, he said, uh, "You can't improve on perfection, Patty. Why don't we rehearse the scene where Jessup fucks Emily on the kitchen floor? I'd appreciate your input on the grunts." <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then, apparently, one of the last things he said to to Patty was, and this was over the telephone, I, I guess. Why don't you take your turkey sandwiches and your script and your sanka and stuff it up your arse and get on the next fucking plane back to New York and let me get on with this fucking film? <laughs> wow. So, to be a fly on the wall behind the scenes. With every, with everyone, it seemed that I mean, I I, I don't want to point fingers here at who's to blame <laughs> for the issues between the two, 
It could very. I. I pro, it, it takes two to tango, well, as they say. Well, I think. I think Patty thought that Ken Russell was going to be more malleable, and Ken wasn't. He was no. just like, "No, I've got. This is my movie. I'm the director. I've got my vision for this, and I'm going to do it my way." And I think you know, Ken Russell. This was his first American movie. That's right. So this was probably huge for him. To. to I to, guess. But I, I, I would imagine to kind of get. I mean, his... it was it was huge for him, but I don't know how he saw it. Sure. Yeah. Um. But he apparently he got along. Uh, Ken Russell got along quite well with the the actors behind the scenes. Okay. I, I didn't see any. Sure. You can of... tell. You can tell that they're very. You know, they're very uh, well directed, and it should be. And just a very interesting note. Um, William Hurt, I guess. <laughs> He's naked through like seventy, like yeah. according to the yeah. naked, yeah, man, through seventy percent of this movie, and yeah. Blair Brown was naked for about thirty percent of her screen time. Uh huh. Um, that's that's Show. a lot. To... Yeah. So that was probably. I mean, I I can't help but think that these decisions were made out of the fact that the script was so uh, cerebral. You know. So. <laughs> Let's let's talk about Patty Chayefsky's initial visions for this movie. Um, he kind of pitched it as a as a kind of a um, a Doctor Jekyll Mister Hyde situation, right? When it's actually a love story in the end. But sure, it is a Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde as well. And that's what he said. And that's something that can't be overstated enough. Through all the discussion that we've had here in the thirty plus minutes. We haven't even touched on what this movie basically is. Is a love story. That's what it ends up being. It ends up. It ends yeah. up being a very powerful love story. More powerful than I, you know, and that's kind of unfortunately what I kind of missed because I would fast forward through certain scenes. But upon this most recent vision with a, 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 a an unaltered state of mind, I'm just like, it's a love story, mm-hmm. and I didn't get that. Because mm-hmm. I was so, I was looking forward to the crazy caveman scene or stuff, and I was looking forward to the Dante's Inferno v- visuals that are going on, or the the seven eyed sh- um, goat goats with seven horns that is not only slain but then shown on the head of Jesus on a crucifix. Oof. Like those were all the visuals that I was just like, oh, I love this. It's such, um, it's the age old battle between oh man <laughs> I want you know good it's not just good and evil though. no it's 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 our own our own struggle with our own sins and how we perceive sin and how we perceive ourselves falling short of being um, godly so there is this struggle going on especially in those early hallucinations with him. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first love scene, he's having, like, he's he's making love to the woman that he would eventually become married to, but he's, like, he's looking, he's not looking at, into her eyes. He's, like, looking off and, yeah. like, seeing these bizarre visuals. Yeah. And I, I can't help but think that maybe part of him even though he rescinded God and claimed to stop having these visions, that they would still kind of trickle in here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't help it. No. Because it's very interesting. People that have claimed that the voice of God has talked to them, um, they don't need, which he eventually 
uses. He uses these sensory deprivation techniques or, s- or substances ho- or substances or hallucinogenic mushrooms. I mean, that's putting constraints on God. And if you believe in God, then God doesn't need. That's right. If he's going to talk to you, he doesn't need anything else other than his voice. If he's going to show you something, he doesn't need psycho. He doesn't need you to willingly take psychedelic substances like so we got this very adventures on adventures on adventures into the aspects of satanism and the the alternate you know uh ideologies right of of satanism so i just want to put that out there i mean there's a lot of the religious aspect is kind of put on the on the back burner, and I think especially we, after the first fifteen or twenty minutes. Yeah, yeah. it's initially. I think it's and a it very becomes more about the experiment, right? And I think that's an it's it's an interesting place to start this journey, though. Mm-hmm. That he he claims that he was having these visions already, so that you know without the use of anything else, no sensory deprivation take, no hallucinogens. He was just God was talking to him or God was showing him something without any sort of outside interference going on and I think that that kind of just I mean that yeah if we're to believe that these things were actually happening to him then like then he he had no like choice but to to kind of take this trajectory that he he does and he takes it he certainly takes it somewhere while he's in that isolation tank by himself, um, having having these experiences, he does he does connect with something that makes that makes him shapeshift, that brings other like what he sees becomes the reality. Like it becomes tangible. When when he yeah. eats the goat and he comes out of the, the isolation tank and he's got the goat's blood on his mouth, on his face. And so, who's the who's the redhead that that we love so much in this? Blair. Oh, oh, Bob. The dude. Mar- uh, Mason Parrish. Mason Parrish. Charles Hayden. Yeah, okay. we should we should uh let's just name drop Bob ba- Balaban is Arthur Rosenberg, who's pretty much Eddie's best friend and also his biggest supporter and assistant. An assistant. He's the one that's monitor- monitoring all the. Ex- experiments except for the one that is unmonitored and right we'll get, there is we'll one that, that yeah that that eddie jessup does bond it and then so. we kind of have the voice of re- reason in mason parish charles hayde who's who's a medical doctor yeah who's who's not interested in like pseudoscience or this psychedelic well, mumbo jumbo but we also see that he's got a lot of uh pride and dignity wrapped up in his uh in his esteemed career right you know so he there's there's that going on when he's battling with 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 Eddie Jessup, and Eddie Jessup just laughs at him. He's like, "I'm discovering stuff here." Yeah, you know, this is the question of subtle science versus unsettled science. Like, I'm taking this further, much further than any of you have done. You and, know, and he doesn't want to hear that. So, so back to the goat's blood. When when that happens, Mason Mason wipes the blood off his face onto a rag, and then ends up throwing, throwing it into a fire because you can't. He didn't want that blood analyzed no. at all. And not only is there goat's blood on Eddie's face, but there's like that that ash that on his it's face. It's a white like, ash. Yeah, yeah, like as if he had been out in the desert. So it's as if he transported himself 
you know? Yeah. It's, and, yeah. And, so something and that came a, back. A very interesting kind of thought that came across me upon this last viewing um, is, it, it, maybe I'm way off track here, just tell me what you think of my, this, this level of thinking, uh, this theory that I have. Um, the more evolved that we become as, as people, the more that we are looking to attach meaning to certain aspects, that we need to have a meaning behind everything that's kind of happening. Why did this happen to me? Yeah. Or why am I doing this? Why do I behave this way? And then in this scene where he becomes a, 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 a monopid, or, or a, he becomes basically the first upright man. He basically becomes a caveman. Right. Um, and we have... It's implied that there's the whole ape thing. So we've got cre- creationism versus evolutionism as well. Right. Here. Go ahead. But, and then... But what happens is that there, he kind I don't know if he realizes it, but for me to realize it, I think when he actually becomes the caveman and he, he ends up in the zoo and he kills this animal, that there's really, we're, we're, we're trying to attach meaning to something that is kind of just a basic primitive level. Yeah. In order to survive, I need to eat. Yeah. I need to drink. I will seek out a food source. Mm-hmm. There is no larger meaning to this goat other than it is meant for me to consume. Mm-hmm. Am I? Am I? I way... think I think I can agree with that. Okay. I don't. I don't think that as in his caveman state when he does the experiment by himself, he does go back to a caveman state. I, I don't <laughs> like using that word. No, it's we, you know, <laughs> the primal. I don't know what what a good term would be for that uh and there is one at the tip of my tongue of course now that we're it's recording. like homo erectus homo uh, i guess homo habilis or something I guess. I it's guess. one of those but it's the pro- most primal state it's, it really is it's i guess what we would call the missing link between man and ape if you believe in right if, if in, you choose to believe in this then then what we have is a man a very and it, i think it's so interesting um that they kind of i it doesn't, it would actually, if you haven't seen the movie, it would kind of seem goofy the way that we're describing it. But it's done very well. It is. Yeah. It's because. A, it's it's one of the best parts of the movie. Um, yeah, because, and it's not, it's obviously not William Hurt playing, no, playing no, 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 caveman. Which, which is something that I noticed here that I particularly like is that, yes, this, if you choose to believe in this, this evolution from from ape into man this first man would not be the size of what we think is a large caveman he would be very small okay right he would be very ape-like this guy william hurt is probably six something Mm -hmm. six and change this caveman is maybe five and change okay he's very it's he's a small man Mm -hmm. you know he's not muscle bound he's not wearing a loincloth this is not fred flintstone Mm -hmm. this is a very kind of like visually accurate thing that would happen. This man would not be six foot tall. If he's evolving from apes, he would be maybe 4'11". You know, he would be pretty small. Aren't there some big apes, though? Don't apes get tall? We could get into a whole thing (laughs) with apes. I'm just saying that I appreciate it that it's not... It's not... He didn't become, yeah, he didn't become like, like the Incredible Hulk. No, it's right. the kind of thing that if you describe this movie to people, aspects of it could seem goofy. Oh, he turns into a caveman. It's, and, it's but really it's, well done. It's handled so yeah. well. Yeah, it's one of the... It's one of the... Actually, it's kind of like the 
action sequence. It is. Of the movie. And that's something else that I, I think that initially turned me off to this movie is for a body horror movie. When you think horror, there's no body count here. No, I mean, does he kill... He doesn't kill those guards, even though it looks like he kills those he guards. He said one of them was in a coma. So, like, okay. if anything, that the, one and, of them had been attacked. The only body count is and, the goat from the it, zoo. And <laughs> it should be noted. It should be noted that Eddie has no remorse no. For, for hurting these guards. Um, I mean, killing an animal and eating the animal, I mean, he's excited about that. Um, but he has... He really doesn't care. That he like beat up these guards, so almost to death. I think something I mentioned to you while we were watching this movie is, and I I don't I can't diagnose a fictional character. He almost seems to be someone that's kind of on the autism spectrum. Right, you did mention that. Um, I, I mean, actually I, I could go with that. Very high functioning, and it's something that it, that people need to realize that autism autistic people are extremely intelligent. Sure. Extremely yeah. intelligent, but oftentimes emotionally cut off. Emotionally and cut that's off. The case with the character, it's here. socially awkward, and yeah. we get that yeah. from from him. Yeah. Um, he seems more interested in talking, you know, <laughs> pseudoscience kind of stuff than he is with like emotionally connecting with a woman. Like mm-hmm. their th- their whole interaction is very stilted. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- yeah. Um, and we get until until the very end, she is so much more emotionally invested in this relationship than he is. Mm-hmm. He kind of sees mar- he's like, well, I guess we'll get married. Mm-hmm. Like that's the next. It's almost like he's reading like a manual of how a relationship progresses. Yeah. You date it's- well, she wants it so badly. Yeah, he, he, you know, he he avoids it, and then finally he's like. It really means a lot to you, doesn't it? He's like, it's like a, he's making a concession. He's yeah. like, well, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I mean, the institution of marriage does not interest him whatsoever. No, um, but she does. It, he is interested in her, and he does. He does love her, even though he doesn't say it until the very until end. the very end. And I think he very much takes their relationship for granted. Mm-hmm. Well, um, he doesn't. Yeah, he can't really connect to it. No, he's, and he is kind of playing a part. And I think that um, to be emotionally dis, dis, uh, displaced as he is throughout the majority of this movie, um, we see that he's. Um, I I think and I, I might be way off base here because the, the sex scene between him and and Blair Brown, Emily and Eddie. Uh, the first sex scene is so intense. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, he's like making love to God. Like mm-hmm. he's having like these intense visions, and then we see later on that he's just like casually hooking up with a grad student. Mm-hmm. And I wonder that if if he's trying to, as he does with the deprivation tank and then with the hallucinogens, if he 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 has no interest in sex other than. To see if this is going to lead to some sort of extraordinary revelation or some extraordinary right. Well, you could say that about all of all of what he does. It's kind of like he needs that uh, he needs that uh, that rush from it. Yeah, you know, um, he needs that re- that revelation, uh, that experience, that that uh, what is he? 
He's just trying to reach the other side. But he does. He needs... It's kind of like a drug addict. Yeah. You know, it's like he needs that to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah, that's what drives him. He's mm-hmm. not driven... I, I think that he is... He's driven by a passion, but it's not a passion for his wife or his kids. Right. One of which is played by Drew Barrymore, That's apparently. right. Drew Barrymore's screen and debut a blank as well. Missing. William Hurt's screen debut and Drew Barrymore's screen de- yeah. debut. Yeah, go figure. Um, <laughs> she's in this movie, apparently. I didn't even know. Like, yeah. I think you see her riding a bike in the backyard or something. Yeah. Or calling out to mommy. There's, there's, we, yeah, there's an indoor scene. I think she stumbles upon them fighting. I think that's her. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, man, there's so much going on in this movie. Yeah. Um, it's... But it's so, it's so masterfully paced mm-hmm. that even if you get hung up on some of the the, the the scenes where the dialogue is wooden, it's like a, it's very cerebral. You might not be able to wrap your head around it. Mm-hmm. It's very quickly you're onto something that is not only visually stimulating, but also, um, the dialogue is a little bit more natural. Especially the, I think the interactions with, um, because Arthur is kind of just like he, he's kind of like a, a yes man. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like whatever Eddie wants to do, mm-hmm. that's fine with him. As long you know, no one's getting hurt. Eddie's only in putting himself into danger, so he's he's kind of kind of just kind of he's along for the ride, mm-hmm. regardless. Mm-hmm. As but Mason is kind of like our. You know, he's almost the antagonist of this movie. He is, yeah. And, and he represents the establishment. Right. And, mm-hmm. yeah. And and academia. He represents academia and medical, the medical industry as well, but especially the academic part of it. Right. You know? And, and I think it's so, like you brought up the scene where he disposes of the blood, I think that he sees that the potential for this as a threat to everything that he's put his life into yeah to to where he's gotten to the stature that he has well and it's even bigger than him what's it gonna do to the whole industry is this yeah it's gonna turn it upside down suddenly my all these years of medical school and doing science it kind of is out the window now because you know all of academia all of the you know all of the science industry and but he so he offers and he offers I, I think that's what something that this movie does so well is he offers counter argument to our arguments yes as does um uh Blair Brown the wife also offers at times counter arguments to something like this until yes. she eventually both of them ag- come around because her and Mason are kind of they're in in line with their the same kind of thinking, they're both they're both people of science, not pseudoscience. People of science. Mason like, and who? Um, Emily and the Emily. wife, Blair Brown. The, okay, uh, Emily. She's um. Oh God, what was her title? Uh, not an archaeologist, but she was um. But she was she spent time um. Endocrinologist. I no no okay um. But she's, you know, she's spending time with with apes and with okay, right. animals. In Africa, and, she goes for a year there. Yeah. And does it. Um, she's more interested in what she could see and touch. Okay. Or hear. Okay. Uh, because we bring it to the, the, um, um, the apes, and, and the way the apes communicate with, with um, you know, with grunting. Each other. Yeah, with okay. grunting and growling and... 
and 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 Eddie Jessup is more interested in making manifesting what he's thinking into something you can see and touch, which he does. He does, and that's when things start to change. And the word I was looking for was primordial, the primordial state. I yes. think I'm saying that yes. correctly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then that's what he achieves when he becomes the caveman. And it's that point when Mason and Emily and Arthur, all of them are just like, what? Maybe something is really happening here. And then, of course, the big finale is when they all have to admit uh, that, well, they all, they're forced to experience this because the, the, the isolation tank becomes basically a portal. Right. It just becomes a huge portal that uh, they all have to deal with now. Yeah, they so can, they're in this basement of this building in Boston, <laughs> where a portal to the void yeah. has been opened. So, let's touch because uh, a couple of these thoughts just passed through my mind about some of the religious aspects of this. The first scene where she sees him, he's walking through the door of Arthur's apartment for a party, and he's completely like, it's all white, it's all for light. Actually, it's like it's seeing God, like it's you light. would it see like if Jesus walked right. into a party and you right. open the door, everything else goes dark and there's just white light right. and this black figure. Yeah, well, you can thank Ken, Ken Russell for that. He's all about imagery like that. There's a lot of that in Tommy, actually. Okay. Yeah. So we like have when Tommy sees his father coming into his room. There's it. It's a lot like that. Okay, so uh-huh. it's shot like mm-hmm. you know this from behind. This with a is, lot of light. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So we get this scene. Where it's like, like meeting God or Jesus, whatever you right. choose. It's you know this is their introduction, uh, introduction, and then it seems to me that when he goes through these um, evolutionary regressions, when he's becoming the first man, and if you subscribe to Catholicism or Christianity, the first man would have been Adam, mm. and it's like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Mm. But she has no interest in being Eve. She doesn't want that. I don't think that she wa- she doesn't want because she's very wor- she wants him. He wants something else. He's looking for this the true self, the first self. She's happy with Eddie just the way that he is. She's happy with her husband. She doesn't want Adam. She wants Eddie. You know, she doesn't want the first man. She just wants her husband. Okay. And, you know, okay. you kind of see where I'm going with I it. I think, yeah. Um, so, you know, but it all culminates into this final, this final... Um, sequence. Sequence where I, I think where it all culminates to the point where he realizes that whatever he's searching for, he's not, it's not going to give him the answers that he wants. Well, it's, it's, it's often the, uh, the argument between, let's say, Christianity and the occult. Okay. It's kind of like you can't have it both ways. It's almost like you have to choose one or the other. People do mix them up. I mean, they're mixed together all the time. Sure. But I mean, uh... He, what he's doing, you could say, is the occult. You could say that. I mean, if you're if you're experimenting with ancient tribal uh, medicines, then there's. I'm not sure if that would qualify as the occult, but I I'm gonna say it will. But he's doing stuff that is an alternative to Christ or God, 
Um, and he's trying to get his answers through that. But uh, he doesn't have any nefarious... Well, it's some... But Okay, go ahead. Finish that thought. I was just going to say, like, I, I think when I think the occult, I think that they have um, some sort of agenda that they're trying to... Well, I mean, you're su- there's a lot of stuff in the occult that's supposed to help you and guide you. Okay. I mean, just basic... A basic example would be tarot cards, you know. Sure. Okay. Kind of, All right. Know, help, you know, this is supposed to help you understand your future and what you need to do and stuff like that. So, um, or the Ouija board. Sure. That's kind of that's what Eddie Jessup is doing. He's playing with a Ouija board here. In in, in a graveyard at midnight. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, and it's through and you know it's scientific and it is through tribal ancient. Uh, Customs and medicine, not so much customs, but the but the medicine that they have. I mean, he t- he brings it back and synthesizes it so he can go into the isolation tank and use it. But it's a lot of this is mind oriented. A lot of this is brain oriented, and it's kind of like what can the brain do, right? You know, and so um, there's a disconnect from there's a disconnect from the spirit, kind of. There is a disconnect from the heart. Um, which is resolved at the end. Um, so everything is just very mind-based. It is. And this brings me to an interesting point. Um, just a, a, a quick side note. This came out around the same... Speaking of body horror about the power of the brain, this came out around the same time as Scanners did. Okay. And Heads blowing up? Yeah, the power of the brain. Like, oh. We have... I haven't uh, seen it. I have I've heard, I don't know if I've seen Scanners. I mean, that's the scene that everyone knows. Yeah. But it's very much about how powerful are you able to to kind of focus your the power of the brain, which is basically a supercomputer. And yeah. Spoilers for the end of Scanners. Uh, he basically destroys a computer okay. using his mind. Oh, <laughs> okay. I like that. But I mean, you know, this is... And the mind is very powerful. And yes. I think it can... I think it can do. I think it can do many, many, many things it that we can. don't that we that we don't even know about. I don't know about telekinesis, but I mean, if you want to take it that far, you know the, what the mind can do. But if the mind is not connected to the heart and to the spirit, it's dangerous. Absolutely. And I think we see that with what we would call sin a lot today in terms of vices that we have. Sure. Um, yeah, and bad habits that we have and obsessions that we have. Um, I can definitely relate to that. I mean, you know, drug addiction comes into play. A lot of addiction, all, all addictions, basically, come into play. And this is when the mind is at a disconnect. And I'm, I'm just venturing to make statements here that um, are kind of lofty, but I just, I think that's true. It is. Yeah. Um, I, I know they say that we only use 10% of our brain. Right? Yeah. Something like that. But what I think what people fail to realize with that statistic is that we actually, we use all parts of the brain, but we don't. According to these statistics, what they use with you know brainwave scans and stuff, we're not utilizing every kind of potential that parts of our brains have. Well, and I don't think you can unless you get away from like brainwave statistics and stuff like that. That's kind of my point. Right. It's like if you there's, I mean, if you don't if you don't bring in another aspect besides just science. To it, um, 
it could lead it could just lead into just like a maze that you you start you end up where you start almost right. you know it's like how you can do all of this stuff with your mind but what is it going to do for your mortal self right you know in the end so i mean you could even if you become this uh if even if you could become like Carrie at the prom, basically, you right. know, I mean, what is that really going to do for you in the end? Do we really have those untapped potentials inside it, of our mind? But even if we did, what I'm saying is just like how how would we use them? Right? How would we use them, and what good could we come? How much good can come from it without a connection to without a spiritual connection? Right. Without you know, and I want to say I want to say upright without a connection to God. But I mean, I, I understand that that's my that's my outlook. Sure. Uh, but I mean, without some sort of higher connection, I guess is a better way to put it. Yeah, and uh, I think it's very interesting that um, some of the, the scientific um, stuff that's adjacent to this movie is that they have you know people that are experiencing seizures or people that are, are having hallucinations they're able to map it out now with ekg meters to see what parts of the brains are being stimulated sure and an attempt to kind of and and this is this is mentioned in the movie um he's he's working with patients with schizophrenia yeah although um it's interesting that he's i think he's giving someone with schizophrenia a dose of lsd or what some, yeah there's i believe maybe maybe i'm misinterpreting right. the oh scene. it's no it's something else something it, else it is a substance though but they are experimenting on this girl right yeah. and um so i did i, I did want to reach out to see uh you know about schizophrenia because i do i have worked in the mental health field so i do have some experience working with people with schizophrenia um and apparently although this wasn't my personal um experience Religious manifestations are one of the most popular, not popular is a bad word, one of the most prominent forms of, of, of what happens with someone with schizophrenia. It is? It is. It's very prominent. You, you were it? saying that it wasn't. I, well, your personal experience. My personal experience wasn't. The okay. people that I worked with never had that. But I think I did mention to you that someone uh, that we worked in a community mental health center, one of the other clients I know had deep religious manifestations and that her apartment was was papered with I mean this religious is, this is highly fascinating religious it, iconography okay so I but like I said my personal experience was it was it wasn't okay so I asked my father who is a psychiatrist who has worked in the mental health field for decades um, and he he said it's it is very common okay so there's something there there's is something, something going there. on with this right yeah but that yeah. goes back to the whole kind of um, and if you choose to believe, then is God really speaking to these people? Like I said before, previous, uh, earlier in the episode, you know, Eddie has to is using sensory deprivation tanks and mind altering substances to try to to reach God again or to have that connection with God that he used to have as a child. Oh, I don't know if that's even what he's thinking. Maybe, but well, I, it seems to be. It almost seems to be going in the opposite direction. Okay. Yeah. yeah, no, that that could be the case, too. I mean, uh, there's a lot of ways to interpret it. But, um, you know, like I said, if you're actually hearing the voice of God or seeing what visions that God is showing you, God doesn't need uh, no. a, a sensory deprivation tank. No. So, I mean, is it 
possible that some of these people that are suffering from schizophrenia and I use suffering it is it's a horrible mental disorder mental yeah. disease um, it, it, that ravages and torments these people on a daily basis um, are are they actually you know is there a small group of people that are not what we would dub schizophrenic but are actually receiving messages from God. Yeah. Uh, well, to touch on that, what's the what's the movie that I that I recommended to you about... Uh, Clean Shaven. Clean Shaven. So we will get to that at some oh, point. That's a brilliant. Good, yeah, a good uh, example. or It shows a good display of the suffering that schizophrenics go through. Um, also, I know you're not a fan of Donnie Darko, but I, I, I love that movie, and he's got uh, mental issues. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought it's interesting it's done in kind of a comic book format but i thought i've always thought it's interesting that people who have mental illness or mental issues might be tapping into something that the rest of us are not right um and i yeah so i i have thought that many times throughout the years but as someone that's worked with people with schizophrenia and actually at a, a um part of my training i had uh, what we did is you 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 put on this this headset so you have your you know it's a full headset so your eyes you know you're seeing what is someone with schizophrenia is seeing and then you have earphones on so you're hearing and it's it's so disjointed and it's so negative and it's it's mm. truly horrible which mm. which like a torture device it's, yeah it's it's horrible oh, you're hearing yeah. voice you, because a lot of time and something that's also very common with people with schizophrenia is they'll hear when they people say they hear voices what they don't understand is that very often they are hearing voices of people that they know mm-hmm. i've had people that i worked with with schizophrenia saying that they would hear my voice at times just mm-hmm. because I was one of the people that they knew mm-hmm. that they would see on a weekly basis. So would that be comforting to them or, or not? Or unfortunately, very often the voices that these people are hearing, these auditory hallucinations are extremely negative. They're yeah. very, very negative. Yeah. It's not. So- yeah. That does seem to be what, what it, I, it's kind of like internal terrorism. Yeah what it is is like yeah. your brain is kind of attacking you because your brain is telling you things that are not true like if you're you, I'm going to go to the store for a pack of cigarettes uh no you reach the, the door the, yeah you can't if yeah. you leave the if you leave the apartment you're going to die mm. like you hear terrible terrible things and when we get into clean shaven which it, it's not an easy watch um just because it's so harrowing and it's the way that this movie is a horror movie, the, the, that clean shaven, while it is, I guess, would be a, a crime drama thriller. It's very much a horror movie because we, it's not in the the sense of a Freddy Krueger or a Jason. We have it's the hell in the mind. We have like no the hell that is life. Getting out yeah. of bed, yeah, like is the yeah. horror. Like putting one foot in front of the other is a horror story. Clean, clean shape, just the. Yeah. Just the act of shaving is a horror mm-hmm. to you. Um, so, okay, let's not get too ca- caught up on that. Let's go back to to, um, yeah. to altered states. Um, How are we doing for time? We're fine for time. We so, are? Yeah, we got about another 20 minutes to go. If we got enough 
to talk about. I well, mean, we do. Okay, then, <laughs> but then I mean, let's get to it. All right, so let me. Should I should I go over some of the trivia on IMDb? Real Please, quick? I think that that's very um, yeah. Some of it is quite interesting. Uh, one of the things that I came across is that um, several of the actors tr- tried the isolation tank. Right. Um, William Hurt claims to have actually hallucinated, and I'm sure he was in character. <laughs> Blair, <laughs> like Blair like Brown found it extremely. Acting. Um, relaxing, which is something that I've heard a lot of times about people that have... In college, we were going to do that before exams. It's in supposed Philadelphia, to be extremely... like, well, let's go, to, let's go into an isolation booth and float for a while, and so it's like it's like going back to the womb. That's basically right. the, the concept of it, and I... Now's a good point to... Now's a good time to say that Patty Chayefsky uh, based this on John C. Lilly, who invented the isolation tank. Okay. Is this something to do with dolphins, too? Uh, well... There was a Mike Nichols movie called Day of the Dolphin that was uh, based on Lily's work, on John Lily's work okay, as well. Okay, because I know there was something to do with the way that, because um, dolphins are, like, extremely intelligent. And they the way are, that, and they can communicate. And the, they, way they they prob- yeah, exactly, the way exactly. that they communicate. Exactly. The way that they communicate. They're tapping into frequencies, dude. Right. Yeah. Frequencies So what's up water. with that? Yeah. What's up with that? So if schizophrenics... Might be ta- there might be certain frequencies. It's kind of like it could go. It could be like that. And I think that this is something that is lost on a certain generation. But it's almost like when you're between radio stations. Oh, that static. Or that's uh, my life. <laughs> or or back when we had like UHF channels, like on cable, like yeah. weird, like weird stuff would like oh z- 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 fade in, fade out. Yeah, is that from another planet? So to, to me, this is just fascinating. I'm like, that's what I'm like. Are we tapping into a frequency that like maybe we sure maybe? And I think that's kind of what altered states is is tapping into a frequency that we weren't meant to tap into. Yeah. It's it because it almost seems yeah. like this at the sensory deprivation tank seems to be very relaxing. The hallucinations seem to be extremely positive, um, but the um, I guess what is it an I the ayahuasca ceremony yeah, it seems is an, to go it horribly an, horribly wrong for Eddie. Right. Um, I won't go into detail about my own experience with these ceremonies and. They're not doing ayahuasca. They're, they're doing a certain mushroom. Okay. Right. You're, you're so, right. But, but I have been to s- similar ceremonies, and I've gone through it, and you do. You go into yourself, deep into yourself, and you face your fears. You really face, you really face some of your deepest, deepest fears. Um, there is peace on the other end of it right. when, you, when, when you get through it all, but that's the point. Um, you have to endure and go through your some of your deepest fears. Right. So and it can last quite a while. So what I'm the point that I'm trying to make is that the the sensory deprivation tank seems to be a, a, a positive frequency to, to to tune into. This is the the ceremony that he partakes in is supposed to be ultimately because it's a religious ceremony, it's supposed to be kind of like a, a cleansing of the soul almost. Yeah, but there's something t- there's something, There's something d- twisted about it because they cut his hand and put his blood into the into the boiling pot, and then they all drink from it first, right. and then he can drink from it, and then he has his own uh, 
trip from it. So it's interesting to me. Which this is, is beautifully theatrically visualized in this movie. Yes, and there are actually scenes from the 1935 movie Dante's Inferno that's, that's right. interspliced into this. That's right. I mean, it's it's visually, like, it, it's it's a stunning piece. Mm-hmm. But it um, it's interesting to me that none of the other people get their blood introduced into this. It's like they want his blood. Yeah. They want his blood as part of their... That's exactly what's happening. Or is it being told, okay, you could participate, but like, it's like we don't really want him to participate. We don't want him coming back, or like we don't want anyone else indulging in this, so we're going to kind of they, spike the punch with his blood? I Maybe. Maybe there is some maliciousness or malevol- malevolence in it, uh, but he does... He does kill a lizard, I think. And it's a, a, not only that, it's a sacred, it's a considered sac- sacred by their tribe. Yeah, so then he's ousted for good. And I don't know how he manages manages to get some of that concoction to take with him, but somehow he does. Plot convenience. That. Huh? Plot convenience. Plot convenience, yeah. They do explain <laughs> it, but, I, it, you know, it went by me. I, I, maybe in the book. It, it's probably something that, one of the aspects of the movie that's probably fleshed out. He, yeah, greatly. he and Arthur exchange a few words about it, but I didn't catch how he persuaded them, if he persuaded them. Yeah, and they were it. able to somehow... I don't know how they would allow that. No. You know, but and especially for it to be synthesized. You know, someone at the ayahuasca ceremony certainly would not No, because that. especially, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, you know, if you think too much about it, it's going to fall apart, because I think that they consider it a very religious, very sacred ceremony. Yes. And that, yeah, like you said, they would not allow... That's like releasing your, your grandma's recipe for... Yeah for marinara sauce. Like, you keep that in the family. You do not publish it. This is not, you know, this is like yeah. unleashing the the colonel's 17 herbs and spices or whatever the <laughs> fuck that he <laughs> does the chicken in. Like, this is something that, you know, this is not meant to be no. out in the public. It's not meant to be out in the ether for yeah. everyone to, to grab. And, and Eddie Jessup has no qualms about doing no. all of this. You Which know? I, It's I, all very... Uh, his mor- his morals are very questionable yeah. throughout this movie. It's highly suspect. You're yeah. just like yeah, it's not very ethical. A lot of no, does. none of it is, no, and that's something no, and that's that what Mason is Mason yeah all torn up about right. And it is fun to see him rant and rave about it because you get that uh, release from you know it's, it, it, the character is almost a device to create that release for the audience right you know? and and we, we find but he's finally proven right and I Who, co- Mason no, no Jessup, Eddie Jetty yeah Eddie is. yeah yeah because um, we get a scene where um prior to the full transformation into to ape where he uh, I think it's the the hallucination where he comes out with the blood in his mouth yes the blood is disposed of but they take x-rays of his neck mm-hmm. and they said that he has some sort of gland or fluid pouch that's, that's supposed ape to, that's supposed to yeah because yeah, the, the guy says ape. it's just a very flippant con you know the x-ray tech looks at it and goes the guy's a goddamn ape <laughs> <laughs> which is very funny because it's the the father the adoptive father of punky brewster and also the star of the police academy movies so that's where i knew that oh, guy. Like, I, I didn't know that i'm like what? Oh, i know that guy <laughs> okay the, uh, is, but like it's that's never really <laughs> And that's another issue I have with this movie. That's kind of never really expounded upon. 
then we get this whole kind of discourse between him and his wife. He wants to hear these ape noises. He goes, he's more interested in the ape noises than his wife. Yeah, he's just kind of like, right. oh, you're back from Africa. Yeah, very interested in hearing those ape noises. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not good to see you, honey. Yeah. Like, how are the kids? Yeah. Like, how are my daughters? No, yeah. no, I want to hear those ape noises. Yeah, um, but it would have been nice if he could have resolved some some of his issues with his father too, because. The father figure slash God is kind of a big deal, but he he does overcome it all through opening himself to love. Yeah, I don't. And so, and I mean, it sounds cheesy it the does. way I'm, I'm saying like, it. It's not like that in the movie. It really isn't. Like he has to fight, fight, fight to that's save the power her. Of the- <laughs> Like, can you imagine if they played that <laughs> over the final yeah. credits? Who is that's um, is that Huey Lewis. Yeah, Huey Lewis and, and the, the news. news. The power of the law. I'm just picturing Back to the Future now, like the opening scene. Stop. <laughs> yeah, because it's not it's not cheesy. That's the thing. Like this movie, it, it juggles so many genres. So like like. Mm-hmm. And it's not drop. It doesn't. It's not dropping anything. Like mm-hmm. you, the get- ball doesn't doesn't no. fall, doesn't drop. No, it's no. they're juggling. Yeah, and like they're constantly throwing up another ball for this juggler to do. Yeah, and Ken Russell, I I gotta give this guy so much credit. I know he really. I mean, it's not a typical Ken Russell movie in a lot of ways. It's it's actually maybe his most mainstream movie. Um, kind of an outlier of his career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the but the way he handles it is true professional. Really, the way he handles this movie, he he executed a really well made flick, really well made flick, and it's a mainstream flick, and it's done and for American audiences, mainstream. Uh, he did it. He did he, his job very well. He did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an, like and I like I said to, to juggle these genres. Mm-hmm. Somebody else that that I, it, it's almost the only other thing that I can compare this to um, is the fly. Okay, because the fly is a love story, but it's also a body horror movie. Yeah, that's true. We have uh, an unhinged scientist performing experiments that he shouldn't. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, there's just aspects of the movie, you know, the very, very different movies, but they're both brilliant movies. The thing about Ken Russell is that he he's crazy. Like, he'll throw stuff into his movies that are way out of, uh, way from outer space, basically, you know? And I actually, I have seen a play that he directed off-Broadway in New York with, um, I think it was Keith Carradine starring in it. And he had one, and it's, it's set in like an English, I think it's an English little cottage, you know? Um, and he has this one woman dress up in like a, uh, like a pink rubber bodysuit, like stuff like that. Like that's the kind of stuff that he usually does. I know he directed opera for a while, so he, yeah, he would put it, he would put it into different um, aesthetics, you know, so this throw is, things into different aesthetics. Is, I know he was going to direct, actually he was going to direct in the late 80s, Christopher Plummer and Glenda Jackson and Macbeth on Broadway, and they they nixed him because he wanted the three witches to be from outer space. <laughs> so this is that's what Ken Russell usually does. This is, so for him to do something that's um, a, a very basic format, formula 
for a film, for an American film, is a testament to his professionalism as a, as a director. So this movie alone has just opened me up to, and again, I got to go back the, the very similarly, one of my favorite directors who will be covering soon with Videodrome, David Cronenberg, you know, he kind of popularized body horror. And, and this scanners came out around the same time as uh, altered states, and like I said, they're very there's similarities to the fly mm-hmm. uh, within Which it. Which came a few years later. And David Cronenberg, I don't know if you know, has directed opera. What? Yes. Are you serious? I'm very serious. I would love to see a production that he directed. I want to say I wonder if Madame Butterfly. I would love to see that. I wonder if it's so, on if it was uh, taped. So I mean, this is just this is just fascinating to me because I'm I just love David Cronenberg so much. Mm-hmm. But like the, the things that you're telling me about Ken Russell and like mm-hmm. it's just like that they're it, kind of of the same cloth. You get like these. Are, this is another thing that I love about the show is that you find these directors that are just. I mean, sometimes it takes a movie like Altered States as an, like you said, it's kind of an outlier to Ken Russell's career. But now I'm just like, give me some more Ken Russell. Oh yeah. Like I want. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I need to see more. And that's yeah. kind. Of, that's. Yeah. There's just yeah, just a brilliant, but, brilliant. Well, the movie that put him on the map is Women in Love in 1969, and it, there's nothing really fantastical about that movie at all. Uh, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful film. Yeah, Alan Bates, Glenda Jackson. Uh, Oliver Reed, I forget who the other actress is, but there's it follows the four of them, basically, as they as they deal with the bourgeois scene in what the early 1900s, I think, in okay. England, um, w- while they're trying to find themselves creatively and artistically as well, you know, and intellectually as well. So we got a common theme here, then, with altered states of kind of trying to, yeah. you know, grapple with those concepts. Just kind of, gra- you know, this is In just, society. Yeah, mm-hmm. very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, any final thoughts for this movie? Well, let's see. What is there anything else on the trivia that needs? Okay, so we were mentioning, we were mentioning the sound system. So it says here, one of the few films to be released theatrically with the mega sound. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's what it was. A surround sound which was similar to Sensoround. Mega sound was a theater sound system created by Warner Brothers in the early 1980s. Uh, So let's actually, hold on. There's more. It was used to enhance the premiere engagements of a handful of Warner features. Theaters equipped for mega sound had additional speakers mounted on the left, right, and rear walls of the auditorium. Selected soundtrack events with lots of low-frequency content, thuds, crashes, explosions, etc., were directed to these speakers at a very high volume, creating a visceral effect intended to thrill the audience. So this is kind of a precursor to what we now know as the surround sound where you have... Sure speakers yeah. all around you. And I could hear it. Your sound system is good here, so I could hear it in, in this Blu-ray version. There um, was a lot going on with the audios. Yeah, and audio, again, yeah, I can't audios. state this enough that the, the, the soundtrack to this is just... It's... It works so well because the, the and I could see why it was nominated for Academy Award. Like the sound mixing, the score was yeah, the sound yeah, it was nominated for best original score. Unfortunately, mm. didn't win. But I mean, the, this composer is so apt at creating. Like you said, sometimes well, it the, reminds. It reminded me of um, that composer that works with Brian De Palma all the time. Those those love scenes in the Brian De Palma movies 
are so the music is so lush and right it's the same way in altered stakes you're just like oh wow we're just getting swept up in this now you know the music proves that yeah sometimes you just like you find the director just finds a composer that that just works so well with his mm-hmm. um with his vision mm-hmm. and um can Ken Russell certainly found that with uh, John Cogliano, who I'm going to have to see. You pull up John Cogliano real quick. Well, I'm not on your Wi-Fi oh, right now. Oh, okay. Well, um, we will uh, get... I'm sure that he's going to turn up on our show again. Another thing that I found that... Uh, did you come across this? That there's claims that Ken Russell was heavily intoxicated during most of the production. No, in fact, in his autobiography, he says that he just really doesn't... Uh, he doesn't... He does drink. He did drink. But um, I, I highly doubt he was drunk on the set. And he doesn't really experiment with substances. He did, I think, a little bit for this movie. He did. That was right. another thing I was going to bring up. He did try. I think he tried LSD or mushrooms. I think so. And in, but in, he said he had a bad trip. Yeah. And in the there is a whole. I, that's why I tried to get my mitts on the autobiography before we recorded because I I remember him talking about going to an observatory and there was like a naked lady on this revolving pedestal and she gave him a little something something to kind of trip on or get high on and they floated up it to the top of this yeah i don't i i, I wish unless i'm reading it out of the book it it sounds like i'm making it up no <laughs> so <laughs> i wish i had the book in front I of mean... me <laughs> but he said from my recollection it was something that was set up by the studios to help him uh try some mind expansion for the flip for sure i mean i i think although i think that it's it's um it's interesting that some of the most visually stimulating movies done by directors you would think that oh they must have been on we came we came across this with john waters they must be on drugs the entire time doing a movie like this and well you know it's it reminds me of it reminds me of um it reminds me of that that story of the Grateful Dead and Salvador Dali having dinner together and Jerry Garcia says to Salvador Dali, I don't know if this is a true story, Jerry Garcia says to Salvador Dali, hey, hey, have you ever done acid? And uh, He said, I am acid. That's right. Yeah. I am acid. You know, you don't... I, I <laughs> that's think, how I feel about Ken Russell. I think... And and I, and that's why I, I agree with you. I, there's no way that he was trashed making this movie. No! He had to have his wits about him to do to do this. I, I he mean, had to. you had, and that's the, the and this goes back to the whole John Waters thing. They're like, yeah, maybe like like after hours we'd smoke a joint or two and have a couple of drinks, but like you don't you you can't be at your best game if you're inebriated or diluted. No, you and, know? and this or if your if your mind is altered. I think this is going to become a common thing here on our show because I'm thinking. Uh, you know Terry Zwigloff saying that no, Billy Bob Thornton was not intoxicated throughout all of Bad Santa. No, and you it, could it, tell that. You too. could tell that I mean, really. And for like people that say, "Oh my God, John Waters must be out of his mind all the time to be making no. stuff like this," it's, no, they it's have just no not idea. the case. He's, he's very professional, and he that, has his actors like you know not deviate one word from his script. He's very specific. He about is, that. and that's the thing. Like I, I think people don't realize. 
these movies that we just mentioned would all be sloppy messes that yeah. would not have achieved the status that they achieved if these people were completely out of their mind. Like, <laughs> right. it just wouldn't right. happen. Right. Like, like, as someone that's been drunk, that's someone that's experimented with <laughs> mushrooms, if I, you know, I don't do my best work when I'm drunk. No. Like, I used to think that as a musician, that, like, oh, my God, if I get super high, I'm going to play the guitar so much better. <laughs> that's not the case. <laughs> I think, I think when, you know Ween, don't you, the band? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw them live, and I'm pretty sure they were tripping. When they were on stage, I don't know how they got away with it, but they did. So I do know. So so I do know that. Well, I mean, it's Gene Ween and Dean Ween. One of them is now clean and sober. Okay, they were they when still I saw them. No, probably not. Um, but I mean, the thing is, and maybe this is the case. It, it, but this is usually the case with people. Even if you are using substances at the at the rate that they do, they surround themselves with professionals. Yeah. Like, even if they might be sloppy on stage, their drummer, their bass player... Will cover for them. They're going to be on point. Yeah. These are professionals. Yeah. So, you know, maybe they cover it up, but I've seen sloppy... I've seen, as someone that's seen many, many concerts, I can... You can tell um, if someone has just slightly buzzed and maybe had, a you know, a sip of wine and maybe a puff or two of the old uh, cannabis... As opposed to someone that's fucking, you know, if you need to see, if you really want to see a train wreck, watch Hated, the documentary about Gigi Allen, and you will see, you will see <laughs> what happens when you try to, to, to utilize every substance under the sun and make art in quotations <laughs> don't get me wrong it's a brilliant documentary but th if you want to see what happens when you really mix art with all the substances that you you know people attribute to certain movies that's what you that's what you will get didn't he didn't he kill he's himself dead. on stage? No, he he kept claiming every Halloween he said he was going to kill himself from like 1981. He said, "I'm good. Okay. This will be the last show." Unfortunately, he died of a heroin overdose before he could okay. kill himself on, on stage. stage. But I'm just saying the ultimate. Yeah, yeah. that's that's kind of like that's what that's what I say when people say, "Oh my god." Like Terry Gilliam made well probably one of the he's made some of the visually trippiest movies, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and just, you know, He's very known for his very trippy vis psychedelic visuals. The man barely drinks and has said that he's yet to ever use anything, you know, psychedelic. And Who's like this, Terry Gilliam. Tell Terry Gilliam. Yeah, sure. Same thing. So, like, same thing. You know, like you said, if you have the mind of Salvador Dali, if you have this creative mind, um, you're tapping into something else. Yeah. Like, you don't. You don't need. need it's, in fact, that's going to hinder you. David Lynch. It'd probably be boring. David you know? Lynch's biggest vices yeah. in in life are cigarettes and coffee. That's like it for him. <laughs> I think he said he smoked pot twice or something. He was ne You think you you I watch know. you watch his movies you must be like this guy must be out of his mind and, and like no. Uh no. so I mean all right, so real quick, I'm just veering the conversation back to Oh, please. Yeah, I I went off on a tangent there. So John Coriglani Coriglaniano Okay. Yeah. So the, okay. The so, composer. Yeah. So he 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 hasn't done that much. No. Altered States was his first movie. Wow. He did a movie after that called Revolution. It looks like it stars Al Pacino. 
Tales from the Hollywood Hills, The Ghost of Versailles, The Red Violin. I think The Red Violin might have been, but that's it. Wow. That's it. So, yeah, very well, talented, but, you know, must have taken his talents uh, into other mediums, maybe? Hopefully. I, I mean, I, I hate to see someone like that, like, I mean, it, just discovering the beauty of his score, like I said, on this, this rewatch. Because, unfortunately, I think the visuals are, could be so overpowering at times, your, your ears are kind of playing catch-up with the music. Or, like, you don't, you don't even realize. And, and that's also the sign of a good score is that you don't realize that it's 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 weaving. not taking it's, it's so integrated yeah. into the visuals yeah, it's not upstaging no you don't have one upstaging the other although i would say in altered states sometimes the visuals are upstaging the music and they kind of have to be considering what what we've said about the dialogue sure <laughs> i think that was the intent so um, <laughs> any final thoughts on altered states um I think we've said it all. I mean, I could keep going. It was, I think, the third time I've seen it. Okay. Yeah, so I've seen it. I've definitely seen it before, and I'm a big Ken Russell fan. So I, I know Altered States. So, but it was, you know, I was able to do this deep dive with you this time, which is good. Just a quick question. When you saw Altered States, did you seek it out as a Ken Russell movie? That's a very good question, and I don't think so the first time. Okay. I think the first time would have been a teenager on VHS watching it, I think. So I wasn't that aware of Ken Russell at that time. Okay. So I think the answer is no. All right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, one of the things that the the studio insisted and Ken Russell resisted was this movie was released on Christmas 1980, December yeah. 25th, and he said that he wished that they kind of put it out in the springtime. But well, this... and I think there was high competition, I think, for... Of course, there always is for yeah. Christmas movies. Christmas is always it... a big time for... Yeah, but it still fared well. I mean, it was did. a critical and box office success. Well, it didn't It didn't blow... It wasn't a... I mean, it grossed $19.9 million against a $14.9 million. So, I mean... Really? It, yeah, it wasn't... I thought it was... It wasn't a runaway hit, huh? No. Okay. Um, I think that it was mu it was much more of a kind of a critical darling. Okay. Uh, which, I, but it's also a very accessible movie, like you said. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not very familiar with Ken Russell, but if you say this is his most like mainstream, I mean, for all the talk that we 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 had issues with the, the some of the scientific jar jargon, don't let that. If you haven't seen the movie, don't let that be. An inhibitor. It's actually very interesting to see how it's all handled, how the dialogue is all handled yeah. by the director and by the actors, um, because it's almost yeah. That's all I'm gonna say. So yeah, don't <laughs> let there, that. And there's plenty to experience uh, for your senses, for all of your senses. Yeah. In this um, movie. So don't let that be an inhibitor for you. Like it's it's. Um. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful love story, kind of wrapped up with um, some psychedelic visuals, little yeah, little bit of body horror. Yeah, science um, fiction. Yeah, science fiction that that's trying to be rooted in real science. Sure. Mm -hmm. And then you know, there's a lot of elements of spirituality. There's there's kind of um. Yeah, it's um it's not there's no visuals that are going to be so off putting that you. Oh my God! It's a horror movie. It's it's not. Mm. It, it it's a love story. There just mm. happens to be elements here and there, mm -hmm. and it's something that 
I, I you know I can't recommend enough. Um, and it's all in Eddie Jessup's mind. All of the hallucinations, right? That we see. No, they, because they do manifest physically when he becomes... Right, no, they do, they do, but we don't see anyone else really hallucinating at all. No. No one else is really putting themselves through what he's no. putting himself no, 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 through. No. Right. So thank you again for joining us here on the Cold Film Companion. We are now available on iHeartRadio, we are available on Google Podcasts, we are available on Acast. We are going to be soon available on Newsly, as I mentioned. Uh, please check them out. Use the promo code CULTF. 1LM for a free premium month of their services and um, check out our podcast on there. Recommend the show to friends. We'll talk to you again real soon and we're going to wrap up this episode. We we briefly talked about drug addiction and uh, on this episode so I think it's only fitting that we now give you a promo for the upcoming Jury Room podcast series about addiction. Thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Good night. Addiction. Noun. The fact or condition of being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity. An overwhelming compulsion. As a species, we have a fascination with wanting to escape the prisons of our lives. To feel like we can dance with these toxic substances as a way to feel something different and new. We think we're always going to come away unscathed. We never expect to find ourselves addicted. This series will explore the need to escape our realities, the history of our fascination with the illicit, and to share the stories of those who have come away from the battle, war-torn and battered, but alive. Welcome to Addicted, a Jury Room production. If you or a loved one have been struggling with addiction, or have in the past, and would like to share your story, please feel free to reach out to me via social media or through email at juryroompodcast at gmail.com. Coming soon to wherever you listen to this podcast.